Hello there, and welcome to the first part of our Series 3 finale. We have already reached the end of this series, so I hope you've enjoyed it. The last two finales have revolved around two of the ancient Greek epics composed by Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so it would seem improper to venture anywhere else given the fame and renown that the myths and legends of ancient Greece have earned. So we are staying where we were for last week's episode and delving once more into the legends of Greece. Yes, Greek mythology is our playground for the Double Bill finale once again, and it is potentially one of the most famous stories that we have had on this show. But before we get stuck in, let me tell you that this Sunday I am launching my Patreon, so after this series has finished next week, you will still have lots of what-you-may-have-missed material in your lives. So go and check that out on Sunday, where there will be a little introduction that will tell you everything you need to know and what to expect from that. And if, whilst you're listening and you've come up with a question or a thought, you can always ping me an email to themythspodcast at gmail.com, or, alternatively, you can fire it in a comment on TikTok or Instagram. Now then, today's episode. It is the story of someone we have actually met, albeit very briefly. His story has been told many times, and, just like the story of Aladdin, it has been made into a Disney film. One of my favourites, in fact. Any ideas? Well, any more clues would give it away. So here we go. The Birth of a Hero Once, in the land of Thebes, there lived a beautiful maiden called Alcmene, the daughter of a brave and great king, Electrion. And it just so happened that she was a grandchild of Perseus. You should remember him from the beginning of our second series. From high on Mount Olympus, Zeus looked down, and liked what he saw. The beautiful woman was everything and more that he desired, and at that moment her husband was away. Her husband, Amphitryon, had accidentally killed his uncle, who also happened to be Alcmene's father, Electrion, in a hunting accident. Versions differ, but for this story we are going with a hunting accident. The killing of a blood relation was, to the Greeks, the most unforgivable of crimes, and so Amphitryon and Alcmene had been banished from Mycenae. They fled to Thebes, where the king, Creon, had absolved them of their wrongdoing. And now, being cleansed, Amphitryon had returned to Mycenae, leaving his loving wife behind. So Zeus, seeing this situation, could not help but jump at the opportunity it gave. Being a loving and loyal wife to Amphitryon, Zeus decided that rather than appear as a golden shower, as he had done to Perseus's mother, he would take the form of Amphitryon. That way, he was sure that he would not be rejected from the bedroom. His plan worked. That night he lay with Alcmene, and when Alcmene fell asleep, he left, feeling very pleased with himself. That same night, 
The real Amphitryon returned, and being all giddy at his success in Mycenae, told her everything, and they made love, and quickly she fell pregnant. So loving was that couple that that didn't stop them being with each other every night, though. But for now we will leave Alcmene and Amphitryon to their amorous activities briefly, and visit the gods. Hera had discovered that her husband had once again disappeared off and got another girl from Earth pregnant, and she was fuming. But she knew her husband, and more importantly, she knew a secret that even he did not. The night before Alcmene gave birth, Zeus decided to blurt out, The next child born of the line of Perseus will rule all those around him. Do you swear this? Hera asked. That whoever is born first to the line of Perseus will rule over all his neighbours? I do, called Zeus confidently. Without wasting a moment, Hera left the hall and ventured down to earth. In Mycenae lived another of Perseus's sons, a chap called Sthenelus, and his wife was seven months pregnant. Hera, using her divine power, accelerated the labour of Sthenelus's wife, then quickly travelled to Thebes where she delayed Alcmene's labour. And so, the first-born son of the line of Perseus was not the son of Alcmene and Amphitryon, but Sthenelus. Sthenelus named his son Eurystheus, and when Alcmene gave birth to twin boys, incidentally, she named them Iphicles and Alcides. Yet Hera wasn't done. She still hated Alcides. He was living proof of Zeus's continued extramarital activities. So she sent two large snakes to devour the baby soon after his birth. Alcides lay asleep in the great brazen shield which his father carried into battle, for he had no other cradle. The fearful serpents crept up with their open mouths into the shield with the sleeping boy. As soon as Alcmene saw them, she was terribly frightened and called in a loud voice for help. Amphitryon, hearing the outcry of Alcmene, ran into the house with his sword drawn and a great many warriors followed with their weapons in their hands. Alcides was only eight months old, but before his father could reach him, he sat up in his bed and seized the serpents by their necks with his little hands. He squeezed and choked them with such force that he pulled their heads right off their long, silky bodies. When Alcmene saw that the two snakes were dead and that Alcides was safe, she rejoiced greatly. Yet she was also frightened that she had angered Hera, so she took drastic action. She took the young boy out into the wilderness and abandoned him, thinking he would die. Yet Zeus, seeing this, ordered Hermes to retrieve the babe and bring him up to Olympus, where he would suck secretly on the breast of Hera. Yet one night, as Alcides was drinking her milk, Hera woke in pain and saw the young boy suckling. She tore him from her breast, and as she did so, milk was thrown up into the sky where it remained and became known as the Milky Way. Hermes caught the baby up before any damage could be done and returned him to his earthly home with Alcmene and Amphitryon. Despite her protestations, Hermes said to her, Your child shall know greatness. Alcmene was still worried about the anger of Hera, and so she and Amphitryon decided on a way that would, hopefully, placate her. They changed his name to something more fitting. Hera's pride. Hera's glory. Heracles. The Youth of Heracles Heracles was a talented young lad. 
His teachers were celebrated heroes from around Greece, some of them descended from the gods themselves, who taught him boxing, wrestling, riding, and all other kinds of sports. He learned to read and write, and to hurl the spear, and shoot with bows and arrows. And Linus, son of Apollo, taught him music. Yet for all his skill, Heracles also had a violent temper. One day, as Linus was teaching him to play the lute, the good teacher had reason to punish him. Linus struck Heracles with a ruler. At this, Heracles flew into a rage and struck Linus with his stool, killing him. After this incident, Amphitryon sent him to the hills and left him to care for the herd. Here, the boy grew to be very large and strong, his strength enhanced due to his drinking of milk from the teats of Hera. While he was still a youth, he slew a giant lion that had killed many of his father's cattle. He went home wearing the lion's skin as a sign of his victory. During that time, Creon, the king of Thebes, who had pardoned Amphitryon, was himself a subject to another king. King Orchomenus was paid 100 ox every year, which Creon did not enjoy paying. 100 ox was a hefty sum, after all. But Heracles led the army of Creon into the field of battle and defeated the soldiers of Orchomenus, thus relinquishing the hold he had over Creon. In return for Heracles' bravery, the king of Thebes gave his daughter, Megara, to him in marriage, and he lived happily with her for many years, and they had many children. However, the gods do not easily forget a slight against them, and Hera was still angry. She sent to Heracles a fit of madness. His house all of a sudden became strange to him, almost as if it was the house of a foe. It appeared to him that there were many enemies, and so he picked up his club, and going from room to room he slew every one he could find. It wasn't until Athena threw a rock at his head that Heracles fell to his knees exhausted and covered in blood. Surrounding him, all over the floor, were the ripped and savaged bodies of his wife and children. Heracles' Service to Eurystheus the wrath of Hera followed Heracles. When Zeus saw that Hera's heart was filled with anger toward Heracles, he mused within his own mind how he might best appease her resentment and protect the young man. So he called the gods together in council, and they advised that Heracles be placed in servitude to his uncle Eurystheus, just as Hera had planned all along. Heracles would serve Eurystheus as a slave, and they ordained that he should perform twelve hard tasks after which, if he completed them, he would be numbered among the gods. Eurystheus was not a nice man. He was mean, stupid, and cowardly. He was glad enough to have a chance to bully a man far wiser and stronger than himself. He was born in Tiryns, a great fortress with many castles built upon a large rock, but he had been made king of Argos and lived in the capital, Mycenae, and he resolved to keep Heracles as far away from the kingdom as possible, for in his heart he was afraid of him. Heracles was ashamed at being ordered to serve a man so much below him in strength and character, so he consulted the oracle at Delphi to see if there was any escape. The oracle at Delphi was a mysterious thing, a divine spirit which expressed itself through a priestess living in a sacred temple. It was supposed to be the voice of the god Apollo, using this human agency for making known his will to men. 
the priestess became inspired to utter Apollo's holy laws by sitting on a three-legged stool over a chasm in the rock, from whence arose a sacred sulphurous vapour, which she breathed in as the breath of the god, and which caused her to breathe out his commands in wonderful sayings. The chasm from which the vapour issued was called the Chasm of the Oracle. The oracle gave forth the commands of the gods, and bade Heracles go forth to be the slave of Eurystheus, so as to atone for all his sins. But it gave him as a compensation a dear friend, Iolaos, who was also his young nephew. Wherever Heracles went, Iolaos went with him and helped. Heracles returned to Mycenae and to Eurystheus, where the king set him twelve impossibly hard tasks that would test the great power, strength, and skill of the young man. The First Labour, the Nemean Lion It just so happened that a terrible and murderous lion lived in Nemea, a wild district in Upper Argolis, and it had devastated all the land and was the terror of the inhabitants. Eurystheus ordered Heracles to bring him the skin of this lion. So Heracles took his bow, his quiver and a heavy club and started out in search of the beast. As we have already seen, Heracles is quite good at killing lions. When he reached a little town near Nemea, he was met by a kindly local shepherd. I shall put you on the right track to find the lion, if only you will sacrifice it to Zeus when you find it. Your wish is my command, friend. Where is the beast? When I find it, I shall sacrifice it to almighty Zeus, as your wish. The shepherd led the way into the hills, following the tracks of the lion, until they came to a spot where some others had last seen the beast. Heracles turned to the shepherd. Remain here thirty days. If I return safely from the lion hunt, you must sacrifice a sheep to Zeus, for he is the god who will have saved me. But if I am slain by the lion, you must sacrifice the sheep to me, for after my death I shall be honoured as a hero. Having said this, Heracles journeyed on. He reached the wilderness of Nemea, where he spent several days searching for the lion, but without success. Not a trace of it could be found, nor did he meet anyone, for there was no one brave enough to wander around in that wilderness. For many days he hunted, until finally he spied the lion as he was about to crawl into his den. The lion was indeed worthy of his terrible fame. His size was that of three normal lions, his eyes burned like flaming coals, and his tongue licked his bloody lips. When he roared, the whole surrounding land quaked. But Heracles stood fiercely near a grove from whence he might approach the lion, and suddenly shot at him with his bow and arrow, hitting him squarely in the breast. But the arrow glanced off and clattered onto a rock behind him. When Heracles saw this, he knew that the lion was invulnerable to arrows, and so he must devise another means by which to kill him. He grabbed up his mighty club and charged the lion. The lion made for a cave which had two mouths, but Heracles closed up one of the entrances with heavy rocks, then entered the other. He seized the lion by the throat, and thus began a terrible struggle. But Heracles, as you have probably guessed, squeezed him in his mighty arms until the lion, gasping for breath, ceased resisting, and before long lay at last dead. Then Heracles offered up a sacrificial prayer to Zeus so as to honour his word to the shepherd, took up the huge body, 
threw it easily over his shoulder and returned to the place where he had left the shepherd. It was on the last of the thirty appointed days, and the chap, believing that Heracles had fallen to the lion, was just making ready to offer a sheep as a sacrifice in his honour. Yet he was very joyful when he saw Heracles alive and victorious, and instead the sheep was offered up to Zeus. Heracles left the little town and went to Mycenae, to the house of his uncle, and showed him the dead body of the terrible lion. Eurystheus was so frightened at the sight that he hid himself within a tower built of solid brass. And from this tower the cowardly king ordered Heracles not to enter the city again, but to stay outside of its gates until he had completed all the other labours. Heracles stripped the skin from the lion with his bare fingers, despite it being so tough. Knowing it to be arrowproof, he took it for a cloak and wore it as long as he lived. The Second Labour The Linnaean Hydra Not far from Mycenae was a small lake called Lerna that was formed from a large spring at the foot of a hill. In this lake there lived a great water snake called the Hydra. It was a snake of uncommon size with nine heads. Eight of the heads were mortal, but the one in the middle was immortal. The Hydra frequently dragged its lumbering self out of the water and swallowed up herds of cattle, laying waste to the surrounding country. Eurystheus ordered Heracles to kill the snake, so he put on his lion skin and, taking his club, started out. He mounted his chariot and took his faithful friend Iolaos, who acted as charioteer. Every warrior had to have a charioteer to drive the horses, leaving him free to use both of his hands. But driving was by no means the charioteer's only duty. He had also to look out for danger and protect the warrior with his shield as well as to supply him with arrows for the quiver suspended at the side of every chariot, and with reserve spears when his own was broken in the fray. It is clear, therefore, that the warrior's life was entirely in the hands of his charioteer, so it is no wonder that only the hero's dearest and most trusted friends were allowed to serve him in this way. After driving for a while through groves of olive trees and past pleasant vineyards, they came to a wild place and saw Lake Lerna gleaming through the trees. Having reached the lake, Heracles descended from the chariot, left the horses in care of Iolaos, and went to hunt for the snake. He found it in a swampy place. Heracles fired some burning arrows at the hydra and forced it out. It darted furiously at him, but he met it fearlessly, put his foot upon its table and with his club began to strike off its heads. He could not accomplish anything in this way, for when he removed one head, two others grew in its place. And then the snake coiled itself so firmly around one of Heracles' legs that he was no longer able to move. Added to all this, there then came an enormous crab to the assistance of the snake. It crept up to Heracles' foot and, seizing it with its sharp claws, inflicted deep wounds. Heracles roared and swung at it with his club, smashing it to pieces. Iolaos, come here! I need your help! Iolaos came running over. Still struggling with the hydra, he cried out, I've got an idea! Get some of that brush over there, lash it to a branch and set it ablaze. When I take one of the heads off, I want you to lay the burning branch against the bloody stump. Then we'll see if this hideous thing can grow back its horrible heads. 
Iolaos did as Heracles ordered and produced a firebrand which he applied to the neck as fast as Heracles cut off one of the snake's heads. The heads did not grow back. Heracles' idea was working. Finally it came the turn of the head which could not die. Cutting it off, Heracles buried it in the ground and placed a heavy stone over it. Then he dipped some of his arrows into the hydra's blood, which was poisonous, so that whoever was wounded by one of them could not be healed. The least scratch inflicted by such an arrow was incurable. Eurystheus, of course, had no word of praise for his great kinsman, but the people, knowing that the place was now safe, flocked to the land in great numbers and drained the lake, which was really not much more than a big marshy pond, and in their new homes they blessed the hero's name for ever. That was the prize for which Heracles cared the most. The Third Labour, the Cyrenaean Hind The lower part of Greece is a most peculiar-looking bit of country. You would think it had been torn off from the bulk of the land, but kept hanging on to it by a small, narrow strip. Then, too, its shape is so bizarre that it has been compared to all sorts of things, sometimes to a mulberry leaf, sometimes to an open hand. If we keep to the latter comparison, we will find that the part which answers to the palm of the hand is a large and intricate knot of high wooded mountains which shoot out spurs in all directions. These spurs, with the land attached to them, stretch out into the sea as many small peninsulas that do not too badly represent the fingers of a hand. The central knot of mountains is even now different from the country all around. It was overcrowded with wild beasts, among which the bear must have been the most plentiful since the land was named after him. Arcadia, the land of bears. The men who had their villages in the narrow valleys by the mountain streams were fierce and lawless. There was nothing for them to do but keep goats and hunt all day long. Arcadia was truly the paradise of hunters, and therefore held as specially sacred to the beautiful huntress, the goddess Artemis, the lady of the chase. She roamed over hills and valleys and through woods and groves by moonlight to protect the herds and flocks. In these same mountains of Arcadia there roamed a lovely hind, sacred to Artemis, who gave her golden horns so that she might be known from other deer by the huntsmen. Thus they might be saved from the crime of slaying what was sacred to the gods. Eurystheus ordered Heracles to bring him the hind alive, for he did not dare to have her killed. Heracles spent a whole year seeking her from the mountain tops down to the valleys through tangles of brush, over streams and in forests, but he was not able to catch her. After a long chase, he forced her at last to take refuge on the side of a mountain and from that place to go down to a river to drink. In order to prevent the deer from crossing the water, Heracles was forced to slightly wound one of her legs. Not until then was he able to secure his game and carry it to Eurystheus. On his way to Mycenae, Heracles was met by Artemis, who rebuked him for having captured the hind belonging to her. But Heracles said to her, Great goddess, if I have chased and caught your deer, I did it out of necessity, not impiety, for you know well that the gods ordered me to be a servant to Eurystheus, and he commanded me to catch the hind. With these words he soothed the anger of the goddess and brought the golden-horned hind to Mycenae. The fourth labour, the Erymanthian boar. 
Elis is a beautiful plain lying to the north and west of Arcadia. Once every five years there was a great festival in honour of Zeus when all the men and boys ran races, wrestled, boxed and played all sorts of games. Between Arcadia and Elis there is a high mountain range called Erymanthos, and there a terrible boar had its lair. The boar frequently left its den and came down into the plains and killed cattle, destroyed fields of grain, and attacked people. You may have noticed a theme here. Eurystheus, having heard of this boar, made up his mind that he wanted the beast alive, and so ordered Heracles to bring it to him. Once more our hero put on his lion skin and started for the mountain. On his way he stopped at a little town where the centaurs had their home. Their home was just on the edge of a high plain, covered with oak trees and looking down across a wild valley through which flowed the Erymanthos River. There were many forests and little streams and dreadful gorges in the valley where these horsemen used to hunt and fish. The centaur chief, Pholos, received Heracles as a guest and gave him cooked meat to eat while he ate it raw himself after the centaur's custom. When Heracles had eaten his fill, he said to Pholos, your food is indeed delicious, but I should enjoy it still more if I could have a sip of wine, for I'm very thirsty. My dear man, we have very fine and fragrant wine in this mountain, and I should like nothing better than to give you some. But I'm afraid to do so, because it has such a strong aroma, and the other centaurs, if they smelt it, might come to my cave and want some. They are very fierce and lawless, and might do you great harm. Ah, don't worry about that said Heracles. I'm not afraid of the centaurs. So the wine was placed before him, and he drank it. A short while later, a great noise was heard outside of the cave, a shouting of many wild voices and a stamping of many hooves. What Pholos feared had come to pass. The centaurs had smelled the fragrance of the wine, and in full armour had made for the cave of Pholos. Then began a terrible fight. The centaurs fell upon Heracles with pine branches, rocks, axes and firebrands, and the clouds, their mothers, poured a flood of water on him. But Heracles was too clever for them. He put two to flight, prevented others from entering the cave, and shot the rest down with his poisoned arrows. Pholos was a kind-hearted chief, and hearing one of the centaurs crying for help outside of his cave, went out to him and tried to pull the arrow from his wound wondering at the same time how such a small weapon could cause death. But the arrow slipped out of his hand and struck his own foot. It only made a scratch, but it could not be healed, for the arrow was one of those which Heracles had dipped in the blood of the Hydra, and poor Pholos breathed his last. The death of his kind host was a great sorrow to Heracles, for in those times, when there was so little safety in travelling, the bond of kindness and gratitude between host and guest was one of the closest and most sacred, often more so than between members of the same family. In all their later lives, host and guest could never meet as enemies, and if the chances of war brought them face to face as foes, they were not expected to fight. They exchanged greetings and gifts, and drove off in different directions. I don't know about you, but that's a tradition I could get on board with. Heracles therefore sincerely mourned his friend, performed over him the proper funeral rites, and buried him with all due honours in the side of the mountain. There he left him, sore at heart, but comforted by knowing that he had done all he could to reconcile the shade of Pholos, 
and that his soul would bear him no ill will when he entered the underworld. Then Heracles continued in search of the boar. He soon spied him in a dense thicket and chased him to the very top of the mountain. The mountain top was covered with deep snow which prevented the boar from running fast enough to escape. So Heracles ran up to him, caught him in a net, threw him over his shoulder and carried him off alive to Mycenae. It is said that Eurystheus hid himself in a large brazen bowl when he heard Heracles approaching the city, and that Heracles threw the boar into that same brazen bowl as the safest place in which to keep him. How astonished our cowardly antagonist must have been to find himself in such a predicament. One can only imagine that he leapt out of the bowl before he could say Heracles. And that's your lot for this week. What are you making of the story so far? Let me know by email or on social media. And remember, on Sunday, my Patreon is launching, so go and check that out when it's live. And if you're feeling generous and you want to support the show, then you can always head over to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash the myths podcast, which is always very kind. Right, we have one week left of this series, so I will see you next week for the finale of Series 3 of What You May Have Mythed. Thank you.